So one of my favorite movies growing up was called Hook. Some of you may remember it. It was a um, Robin Williams was a um, just a middle management guy. He always wore the you know the short sleeve white button up shirt with the tie. Didn't really like his job. Was making fun of memos. Um, and then his name is Peter. And it goes on and it suddenly reveals that he's actually Peter Pan, just grown up. That Peter didn't return to Neverland. And he just grew up and stayed in London and has a family and two kids and just like normal middle-aged problems and he's like ashamed about his weight, he's not unsure about his life, but there's a problem going on in Neverland. And so they take him back and he goes back and he's this like big, he doesn't fit in the area because he's too tall because all the kids stay the same age in Never Neverland. Um, but you know, they're fighting the Captain Hook, he's, he's great. And, but, but they have, whenever they, they try to do the feasts and songs, they go down this big table and this long table, and they all sit around it. For the first time they try to do it, he sits down, and he's like, there's nothing here. Like, where's the food? You guys aren't eating any food. And they're like, one of the little Ernest kids like, Peter, use your mind. <laughs> and he's like, no, I refuse to think like a child. I'm a grown man, I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> um, but you know, he, he softens up, and, he gets, and eventually they have, they have this time where they're at the table again. And he's had this moment where he's dreaming and, and living again. And he thinks and he, he, he does it. And it works. And in his imagination. And this giant feast appears. And they have so, it's beautiful and colorful and full of all sorts of wonders. And they enjoy it. And then as you can imagine, 30 kids sitting around a giant table does. There's a big food fight. And they have so much fun. And it's like, what's better than throwing things at other kids? It's great. Um, but they enjoy it. And what the amazing thing about what happens with the feast in this movie is, is the feast is his way into the community. He's not really a part of the community again until he can share at the table, until he can be with them at the table and enjoy it and realize what is going on. Realize that there is something to celebrate. My friends, we're, we're finishing our series on the bread of life, on those sayings from John chapter 6, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. On the first week, we talked about, we talked about flour, at a big pile of flour, and talked about how you can't really eat flour by itself. Um, it just kind of makes you more hungry. You're like, gosh, I wish this was something that I could eat because I'm starving right now. Uh, but, and then, but also how hungers are a part of our, our life and how we hunger for more things in life than food. Then we spoke about water and flour and water, and I made matzah here, and Vicky also baked, and Vicky can cook, and so you should just call her up, and she'll cook you anything you want. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> she, has, she has a house now, so she's going to... But, but we, we made it, and a lot of you tried it, and a lot of you tried it, you were like, okay, that's food, I guess. It wasn't that good. Um, it's just flour and water, and it's like, well, that's something, I could eat it. Which is better than nothing, right? Like flour, you can't eat. And so you have the flour and water, you bake it. Okay, I could eat this, but I don't really want to. And then last week we had the sourdough starters and we opened them all over and a lot of you smelled them. A few of you tried to take them home and bake with them. We had the sourdough bread and it was, it was better. It was a little better, but it still wasn't quite there. We also talked about how our faith is growing. There's a function to it. Our faith is not static. Our life with God is not static. It's not this like one day you're like, okay, I'm a Christian and then you're done and you have this stasis. And then you like get on a boat to heaven. That's not what life is. That's not what scripture shows us. We have to be growing in our faith or else we're going to be collapsing. 
around it. That's why Wesley would preach, John Wesley would preach about the means of grace. These ways and these actions that we know that God works in a myriad of ways, but we also know God works in these particular ways. God is with us when we feed the hungry. God is with us when we read scriptures, when we share table together, when we love our neighbor. Today we are getting to the salt. Salt is very basic. Here is a pile of salt. Um, really, this is three different kinds of salt. And so this is sea salt, and this is uh, Hawaiian pink salt, and this is lava salt. And so uh, there's a lot of different, most salt before about 50 years ago looked like this. Um, some of you probably remember that. And so before there was chemical, chemically produced salts, then it was basically the, the historic centuries old method of you have a body of salt water, you get a lot of water in there, and you let it evaporate, and then you gather the remains. That's where sea salt comes from. And when you gather sea salt, there's a lot of other minerals involved, a lot more textures that's going on. But uh, about 50 years ago, they realized, well, if salt is sodium chloride, what if we just put sodium and chloride together? Which they did. And it was like, oh, that's pretty simple. So now salt is super cheap, and you can find it everywhere. And it's really just this one, these, these one um, together, this one um, compound this molecular compound together. And, but salt is, salt is great. Salt adds flavor to things, but salt is not a flavor in itself. There isn't a salt taste. Saltiness is just the taste of too much salt. It doesn't really enhance it. But too much salt can be very dangerous to us. Too much salt can lead to high blood pressure and hypertension. Can, if you're on a medication for anything, it can like, get things really wonky. And it's a problem now because most restaurants over-salt Things. They have this really cheap salt that used to be this luxury item, and now they're like, oh, let's just add a little salt to it. People don't mind. You know? and, it, and it does. Like, it usually makes things taste better. And if you're not looking at what's in the ingredient, it's like, oh, they'll, they'll just add a ton of salt to it. Almost all fast food is basically built on the back of chemical salt because it, it makes it go down easier. It's easier to swallow. We live in this, in this culture that's based on, on the cheapness of salt, but still... If you, after today, if you go to Sprouts or you go to Whole Foods and buy a really nice steak, like a really, really good one, and if you're like, okay, I'm going to splurge on this, I'm going to have a great dinner, but you don't salt it at all, it's not going to taste that good. It's not going to be, it's not going to be the same. Or there would be, without salt, there would be no bacon, right? Zero. <laughs> it wouldn't exist. <laughs> it literally could not exist without bacon. It's important. It's important in, in our foods, but it's not, it's not a thing in itself. It is there to enhance what is already present. In Matthew 5.13, Jesus tells us to be the salt of the earth, not to just be salt. You need to be salt of the earth. Salt is not salt for itself. It is, it is for the food. You can't take a rotten piece of meat and put some salt on it, and it's going to be better. You can't take rotten vegetables or rotten fish and have like, oh, that's smelly, and then just like, I'll just put a little more seasoning on it. It's just, it doesn't work. You're going to be sick. You'll be in the emergency room, and I'll come and visit you, but <laughs> it'll be okay. <laughs> it's not going to work. We're not like deer or cows who have like a block of salt, and that's what we get our, you know, our, our greatest treat in the afternoon. Although sometimes, if you've ever been to a restaurant with young kids, and they don't have chips, and there's like, oh, there's... They find the salt shaker. It's like, oh, it's okay. No one's looking and just put salt in their mouth. And it happens. It's okay. No judgment. We don't need salt to make bread. It's not an integral 
component, the sourdough bread last week was fine. Without it, the good, good flour, it has a nice flavor. It tastes okay. It's fine. But our future with God is not just okay or fine. <laughs> it's not just blah. Jesus doesn't say, I have come to give you the absolute minimum life possible. <laughs> That's not the offer on the table. It is abundant life. It is life to the fullest, overflowing life. We are, given, we are not given life to be sour, but to share Christ's abundance. To share something we can be proud of with other people. And Thomas Keller, who's the founder of the French Laundry in, in Napa Valley, has a book called The French Laundry. It was one of the first kind of high-end cookbooks. I remember reading this as a young age, as a young age. I was about 20 and I was so excited. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so great. I'm going to cook all these recipes. And I've cooked two <laughs> since then. Um, but it's great. But he has a page in it all about salting. And he has this sentence where he's like, the most important thing you can do as a cook is to learn how to salt properly. And the, most, the biggest difference between an excellent chef and a, and a minor one is knowing how to balance. Balance the seasoning in what you are making. There's a, um, there's a, say, a phrase in Italian called come un yovo sodo senza salva, which means, um, is used to describe a boring person, which literally means they, they taste like a boiled egg without salt. <laughs> which if you, you can imagine having a boiled egg without salt and you're just like, duh, duh, duh. you know, it takes 15, it's like putting like 10 Ritz crackers, Ritz crackers in your mouth, and you're just like, this is going nowhere, and this is this blob in your mouth. And that's like, wow, that's, that is, that's like a boring person. You're just like chewing and chewing, and there's nothing of substance. Anyways, um, but, that's, but that's, that's the same thing too. If we don't act as salted, as seasoned, as full people, that's how we're going to behave in this world. That's how we're going to treat. If we think our faith and our life and our joy in this world is just to be the absolute minimum, and just to be like, okay, yeah, I'm a Christian, God is good. That's all right. Like, that's not what Christ offers to us. We're not offered this minimum thing. We're offered a feast. We're offered a life that is not just for Sunday morning, but for as we go from this place to be seasoned, to be well balanced in love in our life. In Matthew 13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. In Hebrew, the word for something that's lost its saltiness is the, is the same word for acting stupid. Yeah. <laughs> when you lose your saltiness, you don't act as you should. You're doing things that you shouldn't be doing. It is not quite right. When we lose our saltiness, we are not living rightly. We're not living up to our potential. We're not living up to the abundant life that God offers for us. And there is a time for feasting and then a time to go into the world having God with us. Our hearts seasoned, full of God's love. And this is where Ephesians 6 comes in, in the armor of God. The splendid armor of God, because faith is this maximalist thing. It's not just doing the minimum. God doesn't send us out into the world naked to be hunted by wolves. God gives us protection. God gives us armor, the belt of truth, 
the breastplate of righteousness, all of it because God, Christ offers life to us. And we can take that life and accept it. The God who created everything from nothing offers life to us. The God who called Abram of the Chaldees from Ur all the way to the promised land offers life to us. The God who said to Abram and Sarai when they were in their 90s, you will be the father and mother of all nations. And they were like, you've got to be kidding. But they believed that God who fulfilled that promise. That God who answered the prayer of Joseph when he was in the pit that his brothers threw him in and lifted him up out of slavery. That God offers life to us. The God who freed the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt and opened part of the waters of the Dead Sea. That God offers life to us. The God who sent Ruth and Naomi together. The God who compelled Ruth to say, where you go, I will go. And your people will be my people and your God will be my God. That God offers life to you. Ruth, who was to be the ancestor of King David, the ancestor of Jesus, the God of life. That story is a part of our story. That God put us here today in worship. God doesn't send us out into the world naked, into the world with just the minimum on. So put on the armor of God. Don't avoid protection that God offers for you. And when you are with the people of God, feast. Celebrate. Celebrate. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is the parable of the prodigal son. The story of the father who has two sons and the one son who decides that he's had enough of his life. And he, he tells his father, I just want my inheritance now. I don't want to deal with you or my brother or anything else again. So he takes his inheritance and he goes to whatever Vegas was in 0 BC. And he just blows it all. He has a crazy weekend. He blows it all. And he's just got nothing left. And he's just like eating with the animals. He's, eat, he's going like he's a farm. He goes to the pig side. He eats the pig slop before, before they get back. And he realizes that his father's pigs actually eat better than he eats right now. So he goes home. He goes home not because he expects anything from his father. He's not expecting anything. He's just thinking like, well, maybe I can at least be on the level of the pigs for him. Maybe he'll at least give, give me that. But instead, instead, his father says, let us slaughter the calf and feast this day. For my son has come back from the dead. My son who is lost has been found. Now I think it's a great story. I think every preacher has about 25 ways they can preach this text. They've, they've probably done it many times. It's always one of, it's an easy one. If I'm like having an emergency and I have to preach somewhere, I can always just pull out, okay, I'll do prodigal son. Awesome. <laughs> Let's cover it. Um, but I want us to think about that, the last part of it. Not the forgiveness, but the feast. But the feast that they throw. And if we don't understand feasting, we can't really understand the parable of the prodigal son. And this is not a feast with a lot of RSVPs. He didn't like check everybody's schedule to make sure, okay, can you make it tonight? I don't know. If we're gonna, can we do it tomorrow night? There wasn't like a, a doodle poll to figure out when everybody could be there. Jesus himself was not very big on RSVPs. He has this, this great parable about where this the landowner who invites people to dinner and everyone has an excuse. And they're like, oh, you know, my dog's sick. Oh, the harvest has just come in. 
And it's like, fine, whatever, we'll just invite everybody else. So they just go to the street corners and they just get everybody off the street. They get people in the prisons. They, un- they, everyone comes except for the people who were invited. Jesus feasts a lot. The Pharisees have a problem with the disciples because they're feasting too much. They don't have the sour face of, of people who should be fasting. It's like people of God should be fat, sour, and just look solemn all the time. And Jesus' disciples are smiling and happy and following this man, this carpenter from Nazareth. They don't, they don't understand what is going on. And these feasts they have are not pre-planned meals six months in advance to make sure all the right people show up. They're They're spontaneous. They're not celebrating. Jesus doesn't celebrate to show how awesome a host he is, to show off his new china. He's not celebrating to, to show something like that. It's not to make sure all the right people happen so we can have a good conversation. It is to celebrate. It is to celebrate. What do you have to celebrate about? What do you have to celebrate about? What is going on in your life that is worthy of celebration? Modern Americans... Mostly have three or four celebrations a year. They have the birthdays, the holidays, every once in a while, maybe one cookout in the summer, and all of this. And these are wonderful. These are great. Yay! But, but so, so often they turn into rituals in themselves and devolve into obligations that I have to go to this. I have to do this. Oh my gosh. You know, especially people in their 20s. When I was in my 20s, I don't know, you in your 20s, it might be different, but it's like, all these weddings this summer I have to go to. Oh my gosh. It's such a burden being invited to all of these weddings where people are celebrating and offering me free buffets. But that's, that's talking to myself more than anyone. So. But these celebrations are wonderful, but the child looks forward to his or her birthday in a way an adult rarely looks forward to anything. Have you ever looked forward to anything as a five-year-old looks forward to their birthday? Or is excited for and the possibilities and the openness? And like, oh my gosh, it is happening. It is a birthday. It is for me. Someone is going to celebrate. Hey. Have you ever looked forward to worship like that? Is faith a gift to you or an obligation? And I say for myself that so often it's like, okay, it's Sunday. I'm the preacher. I guess I better show up. <laughs> it, it happens. It's, but that's not what I was offered. That's not what Christ offers me. Is like, here, Wilson, here's something to be busy on for Sunday morning for the rest of your life. That's not what Christ offered to me. God offers you life. God offers us life and forgiveness. God offers you the bread that lasts forever. So we should celebrate. We should celebrate. St. Augustine said a Christian should be a hallelujah from head to foot. St. Paul says in Philippians, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Our joy and celebration of God is not something to cause guilt, though. And we should remember that. We should remember that because there are times in our life when we can't celebrate. There are times in our life when we do not, when a smile would be a lie. Jesus tells us to mourn with those who mourn. Jesus doesn't tell us to turn that frown upside down. Jesus tells us, blessed are the meek. To be in solidarity with people. To mourn with those who mourn. What a powerful sentiment. But also to remember that that is not the end of the story. And to stay with people. To stay with people. The bread of life offered to us 
The bread of life offered to us is not an amazing pension or a book deal or a new car. Jesus doesn't go around and say, you get a car, you get a car. Everybody gets a car. Look under his seat. You got a car. That's not what Jesus offers to people. We are offered life in the midst of a broken world. There is a season for everything. And we need to stay in those seasons with the people in our lives. We need to stay in the midst of those seasons and hold hands. And remind, and just be able to be a voice that says, you know what, this sucks. This sucks. This should not have happened. Because the brokenness breaks God's heart as well. The brokenness in this world is not part of God's plan, but the redemption of this world is. The joy at the end of the story is the joy that we can find in the midst of the clouds of our life is part of God's story for us. And so we should celebrate not out of guilt or obligation, but of the amazement of the gift that we have received. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are remembered. You were lost and now you are found. I want to teach you all to close by teaching you all a chapel song. And so there's some words should be up there. So this is a song I taught to three to five year olds to talk about the story of... um, the miracle of Cana. So in John chapter 2, Jesus goes to a wedding and he turns, you know, the party's kind of falling short and people are getting bored, getting that kind of uh, egg with no salt aspect in conversation and Jesus turns the water into wine. And so how do you explain turning water into wine to a three-year-old? So this is my attempt. Um, and you can stand up and this is a joyful song. If you want to dance a little bit, that'd be awesome. Like, <laughs> loves to party, doesn't want us to feel sorry, when others think that they're not fighting, turns the water into wine, so let's celebrate, celebrate today, let's celebrate, celebrate your way, show me how you're gonna celebrate, just save it today, show me how you're gonna celebrate, just save it today, let's celebrate, let's celebrate, let's celebrate, let's celebrate. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated.